What is China? The land of opportunities? The global economic force on its rise to becoming the global tech leader? How does that influence healthcare? My name is Tiasha Zaitz and you're listening to Faces of Digital Health podcast. Today, two Americans will share their insight in the healthcare development of the land with 1.4 billion people. Let's start with a story about bribes to reach healthcare specialists and three strategies how to approach the Chinese market as an entrepreneur. My first guest today is Bay McLaughlin, Forbes contributor on tech in China and the co-founder of Brink.io, part incubator, part accelerator, part investment fund with headquarters located in Hong Kong and offices in mainland China, also London, Berlin, Helsinki, Amsterdam and soon USA. And just before I let you go, thank you to all the regular listeners. It's great to see the interest every time a new episode is published. And I'll keep working on content that will make it worth coming back. I know it's annoying, but if you have a minute, please take time to leave a rating or review in iTunes. I would love to improve and get new ideas with your help. Let's start with something really easy. How do you pronounce your last name? McLaughlin. But you can just call me Bay. It's okay. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I, uh, I I live in Asia. I can't pronounce anyone's names, so I fully understand the problem. Okay. Um. So tell me. Um. You've been living in China for the last four years now. Uh, have you ever visited the doctor so far? So as a foreigner, I would say that my experience is going to be different for sure than if a local person would go to the doctor's office. Um, I've had to go just briefly to get something uh, in China. I would generally see my doctors in Hong Kong, which would not be a good example of what it's like. Um, but I certainly think that there's a, a fundamental difference uh, in terms of the way they perceive care. Uh, and how they approach it. In what sense? So a couple of ones. Uh, the one that I don't like the most is that he who has the most money gets the best care. So you'll actually see a lot of families where they need, let's say critical illness would be a great example, like if someone gets cancer or something. Uh, unfortunately, in America, we understand that you can spend a lot of money or the West to get a specialist. The challenge is if you have something that's urgent in mainland China, you literally have to uh, give these red packets or bribes to go to see the doctor first. So people that have more money get more urgent care and get the best doctors. Uh, and if you're not living in what they call BSG or, or the Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, the tier one cities, you won't get the same level of care in a tier two or a tier three city. So when you really need something specialized, they'll f their families are forced to either sell a lot of their assets, invest in that one person, move as a family closer to that bigger city where they're not allowed to be or not from. It's really, it can be tough. And I think that that's probably not completely different than what I you know, perceive as where I lived in America, the healthcare system, but the bribery and the kind of cutting of the line, that kind of stuff, I don't think you see as often here. Yeah, that's a good point because uh, in the U.S. Uh, healthcare is also expensive and because of the free market and because of direct consumer advertising and because of lack of regulation, for example, of uh, pharmaceuticals, you've got really big issues compared to Europe when it comes to drug prices and accessibility to, to uh, medicines. Uh, I don't have a lot of knowledge about the Chinese healthcare system, but I did read that 95% of people are supposed to be insured. So in that sense, um, 
I thought that uh, it's the care is more accessible to people. So probably the statistics in China, whenever you read stats, you should just try to look below the surface a little bit further. Like you can't really believe everything you read about China. Uh, sometimes you actually can't believe what you even see with your own eyes and you're there. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me that 95% of people are cited as being covered. Certainly in any communist country, the idea is that everyone has sort of the same basic things met or needs met. You know, you have a job, you can, you have food, you should have health care. Uh, but I, I would be surprised if 95% of the Chinese population actually have the ability to get the care they need. I would highly doubt that. Um, there's also just a massive you know, difference in terms of the scale of a country like China. Like one of the other things that uh, one of our mentors uh, to our program, she works on is the fake drug epidemic that's in China. So there is a massive, massive amount of fake drugs that enter that country, uh, like pharmaceutical, like, like what you expect to be brand name drugs. And obviously that could be very dangerous. Uh, we don't have the same types of controls that you would expect in the West or the ability to hold people accountable. And that, I mean, especially in a country that has a high price sensitivity, like China, or you can think of any other kind of developing country, uh, that's scary. You know, that could be a problem. You actually opened up quite a few questions connected to digital health and digitization. One is uh, the potentials of blockchain, you know, to, to actually measure the, and prevent counterfeit medicine to be on the market. And then the second one is, of course, telemedicine and new digital solutions that are increasing access to medical professionals and information. Yeah, I'll take the second one first. So the very first company I ever advised when I got to China was a telemedicine company. And what they were doing is they were taking uh, the challenge of getting a cancer diagnosis and then not being certain that what the doctor was telling them was correct. And that's a real big problem in tier two or tier three cities because you're not getting the best doctors. And obviously a cancer diagnosis is not ideal, but on top of it, it can be life-changing from a monetary perspective for the family. And so what this company was doing was they were really early, it was about four or five years ago, and they were working on this idea of how do we help this underrepresented or under uh, or the group of people that didn't have the money to necessarily go to a tier one city like Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, get the same level of care that you would get. And so what they did is they created a, um, a second diagnosis uh, or second opinion network of cancer researchers and doctors from the West. So they had people from Stanford and Berkeley and Carnegie Mellon, uh, MIT. And what they were doing is they were allowing these Chinese that had enough money to sign up for the subscription, which is far cheaper than the, you know, the bribery or the red packets or the cost of going to a city in China and getting a second opinion from a Western leading researcher or doctor. And that doctor loved it because they were able to fill in the gaps in their schedule and in their life and help feel good about it on top of it and get money, you know, and some of them would actually come over because they needed to have Western care. Was this a Chinese startup? Yeah, Chinese startup. So how did they connect to the Western universities? The, the reason I'm asking this is because one of the things that you also said uh, today was that everything is possible in China, but everything is also extremely hard. So because the Chinese market is extremely competitive, um, it almost makes you wonder if it even makes sense to even try to tackle Chinese market because you have enough competition already, people that are familiar with the market and can serve it better. So from the uh, if you're an outside um, startup, 
does it even make sense to go here? So this is actually the theme of my keynote last year at South by, which is why China matters now. And I talked about three strategies of how to work with China. And this is a great example of that. There's only really three macro strategies and they, you shouldn't necessarily work with China. Just, you should know there's lots of opportunity and there's a couple of ways to approach it. One is building a very strong brand overseas and then bringing it from the West to the East into China. That's very common. You see all the big luxury brands have done that very well. You then have the, the, another one, which is East for East, which is you take what you've learned as a foreigner in the West and you come live in some place like China or the Philippines or wherever, Indonesia, and you learn about problems that locals have in that region, but you apply things you've learned from being overseas to build a local service or application or company to service that particular population. Uh, and there's so many good examples of that. And then the last one is you take something from the East, let's say China, and you bring that to the West. Um, I think this particular example is, is, a good one of take something that you've learned, the way you've been thinking about it. It might be telemedicine, remote uh, care from the West and go look somewhere in the East, like Indonesia or the Philippines or China with massive populations and needs and apply what you know to servicing that local population. And that's this particular example was it was a foreigner, Chinese born, but he had connections and family in the States that he could reach out to saying, Hey, I know you work at a university. Can you make an introduction to the doctor? And after he had one, he had three, then it was seven, then 10. And doctors just understood that value proposition really quickly. It was his job to find the customers in China and then connect them over the internet. So it wasn't some rocket science, like master plan. It was, I have people that have problems. I just need to find one doctor to start. And then one became three, became five, and it started working. And so I think it's, um, it's a great example of you don't necessarily have to, quote unquote, attack the Chinese market. You can just understand there's a problem, try to connect a couple of dots, start small, and it can grow into something big. Because your accelerator, you're based in Hong Kong, but in your accelerator, you're working with companies from 20 countries. So how, my, how many of your portfolio companies are coming from the outside? How many are local? So we service the entire world. Uh, we're not just in Hong Kong. Uh, we're in Hong Kong, Guangzhou, uh, Barcelona, Bahrain, uh, and we have more coming up soon. Um, but the uh, accelerator that we have, we have actually three different accelerators. Uh, but the ones in uh, Hong Kong or greater China, we receive applications from almost 60 countries. We've invested in 20, only a couple have been from mainland China. We haven't decided to do a China-focused accelerator just yet. Uh, it's possible we will, but we're really open-minded and we find innovation in every corner of the world. Like I can't tell you how cool it was to open our first accelerator in the Middle East. We have it in Bahrain, servicing the Middle East and North Africa. And it's so inspiring when you start seeing applications from parts of the world you've never been to, but you don't understand the local problems. You start realizing how profound of an impact you can have by investing in a team in Lebanon or you know Jakarta and places that you're like, man, I never knew that was that problem. And this is a great idea. These founders are awesome. Let's do this. If we go back to blockchain that we mentioned before, how do you see it applying to healthcare in China? Do you already see any solutions that are addressing specific problems? So blockchain in China is actually the biggest theme in Q1. I'm going to write that recap for my Forbes column because the volume of focus of the amount of startups that are being invested in or founded is is astronomical. Uh, in terms of applications in healthcare directly, 
I haven't seen any and I'm scouring. So I'm sure there are a couple, but it, it doesn't seem to be the major theme right now. I think blockchain, you know, also as the, the founder of the QS or the quantified self chapter in Hong Kong, uh, and a big proponent, and you know, I lead a lot of those, um, investments that we make in health and med tech at Brink. I really, really, really believe that, uh, health tech in the medical, uh, field is one of the number one reasons that blockchain will do really well. Um, in one of your columns, you mentioned that uh, China is extremely strong in AI and they are investing in it from the governmental level. How do you see that's going to translate into healthcare and how soon? So AI meeting healthcare is actually one of my favorite topics because for me, it's all about having long form, high fidelity data sets. So what's nice about, you know, all algorithms, artificial intelligence is it just needs data. The problem is for us as individuals, we don't, we, we think we generate a lot of data, which we do like for our own perspective, but in terms of the aggregate, like you can't just study me in terms of, let's say my heart rate or my, you know, abnormalities, in my heart rhythm, and all of a sudden come up with something to help me out. Like that's not really how that works. AI needs huge data sets. So I think it's going to be really, really interesting. Um, uh, when we find that combination of a bunch of us like me that track a lot of stuff about myself and then have these kind of open-ended um, data sets you can apply, like invest your own data into. This is what Apple does right now. I'm part of the Apple's open heart health study and everything else where millions of us are giving them our data because we want them to help fix us, right? They, we want them to help improve our lives. And AI needs a shit ton of data and China has more than anyone. Um, but I also think it's another topic is they're not as forward in terms of adopting like wearables and things that we see in the West, which I mean, certainly they'll make their data available if they want to, let's say the, the central system of their hospitals and everything else. If China wants to take that data, they'll take that data. Uh, and because they've invested so much in AI, I would imagine that we'd see a lot of really profound advancements happening. But I wouldn't say I'm seeing that now. I'm still seeing the Western world investing and coming up with a lot of these really new uh, algorithms and solutions. Um, but I don't think it's going to be forever. I think it's just sort of matter over time. Is it possible to assess what's the general attitude toward healthcare and uh, self-care? I read in um, one of the reports by the World, uh, actually the Future Health Index, uh, noted that about two-thirds of the general population surveyed said they have used a connected care technology to track health indicators in the past 12 months. And the majority of users also said that they share that with their doctors. Um, so that's... This what, was in China. Yeah. That surprises me. Yeah. I wonder where that survey came from. That, that like maybe that would be in, you know, Beijing or Shanghai. But I mean, when you go to this, when you walk the streets in China, you do not see wearables. Well, that's exactly the thing I was wondering about because, you know, it's 1.3 billion people. The, the, the rural population and the large populations are not really, um, I can't imagine, uh, them having the economic power to really uh, even buy that or even care that because they have so much other worries. Yeah. I think there's two ways to look at that. Certainly that's not just a China issue. That's a global issue, right? Like when you don't have as much money, you don't have such frivolous things, right? I say two things. Uh, the rural population in China is connected via smartphone, period. That's really cool. That's very different than a lot of countries. We're seeing massive penetration because the prices of these technologies in China are very, very small. So great example, Xiaomi, uh, one of the, you'll see their IPO come out this year. It's rumored to be four times bigger than Alibaba. Seems unlikely, but possible. Um, they make, uh, the, the Mi Band, which is a version of the Fitbit, but it's under 10 bucks. Uh, I agree with you. 
that certainly I don't see it, but I think that from just a price perspective, China can create the cheapest wearables and trackers on earth and they do. So I don't even think it's a cost thing. I think it's just a general cultural and awareness issue that we'll see tip over just like you see in any developed country over time. So how do you see the the rise of the Chinese market and their big drive, you know, to be the global force in everything uh, is going to affect healthcare globally and healthcare companies globally? I don't see as much intersection as you might anticipate. I hadn't thought about it before you asked me, but I'm surprised by that because again, my column for Forbes, I'm looking for China tech stories every single week and very rarely do you see a health story. And, and maybe that's just part of the, the natural development curve of any country that's pulling itself up, you know? Um, but I think it's for, for being so big and like you said, being so dominant in so many different industries and you know aspects of the world, that does seem surprising. But in your portfolio, you have quite a lot of uh, startup companies that are addressing healthcare issues. Can you maybe um, name a few examples? What kind of problems they're addressing and how did you choose them? We have four verticals. This is the how we feel vertical. So that's everything about how we feel as people. And it's it's pretty easy to say yes to these ideas because it doesn't matter how big they are. You just realize that there's a lot of people that are affected by a lot of crazy stuff. And if you can solve even 1%, you're going to have a really positive impact, you know, in your life. And so some of the early ones we did, uh, one, one is called pill drill. Uh, so they help people with their medical adherence, which the, I think it was the CEO of CVS was quoted that this is the largest problem in medical, uh, medic, uh, medicine globally is making sure people take their pills. So it's a multi-trillion dollar industry annually. That's crazy. Um, one of our other early companies, uh, was a company that actually works for uh, fall detection for the elderly called Simple Wearables. They're in New York City uh, between usually the Philippines, Hong Kong, and New York. Uh, and a recent one we did was in uh, people with type 2 diabetes, they generally have a lot of problems with circulation in their lower limbs and they lose feeling. And I didn't know that in America alone, 200 people have their legs or their feet amputated every day. And so what they're doing is they're created, uh, it's a nanotech company. And what they do is they insert a thin one nanometer layer of uh, graphene uh, into the sole of the shoe and it starts recognizing that people are starting to lose sensation based on the different pressure they put in their feet so that then they can alert themselves, the doctors, their loved ones, because with that particular problem, it's one of those issues that once it's a problem, you're already on the operating table. There is no black and white. Like once you've lost sensation, it's too late. So it's really one of those critical things you want to predict. How did you get interested in healthcare? I'd probably say I just have a... Uh, a general interest in hacking and figuring out how to make something better. And I always tell my, uh, my mom and I used to tell my dad, I, I just, I felt like I didn't have to age and have the pains and the problems that they have. And I just saw that thinking, man, it's such a bummer that that generation my you know, they're, they're in the, their seventies. They, that, you know, didn't really have this perspective of, I can do something about this. They were the first generation that uh, were put cigarettes were put into their lives and no one knew they were bad. They were that first generation that was, uh, you know, allowed to, it was all of the 60s and 70s, right? All the drugs and everything else. And it was more of this open-mindedness, like it's all going to be man, all right, man, don't worry about it, you know? And I don't know. I always tell my mom, she always gives me a little bit of crap about this. She's like, I come fly home for Christmas or something and I have all the gadgets and the trackers on me. It's like, what are you going to do? with all that information. Like, what do you really, what's the point of all this? And I just had a kind of simple answer. It's like, look, I'd rather say that I tried and it wasn't worth it. than 
have to kind of fall apart like you and dad did. Like, like they, like my mom's in serious pain all the time. She had three hip replacements, needs to get knee replacements, like all these things. I'm like, well, we're the first generation that can unlock all this data about ourselves. And, you know, I hope, and I've seen it every day where there's a new advancement in some part of the world. And if I have data, I can upload it. And who knows, like maybe they can help me out. How do you see the entrance of big corporations in the US into healthcare? Amazon, Apple, Uber, everybody's going in there. I think it's fantastic. And it's not because I think that, you know, down with the healthcare system. It's look, people are dying. There's a lot of uh, incorrect incentives, in my opinion, in the current infrastructure. And whatever can be done to advance the care that we get should be done, period. Amazon knows what you buy and what you want. Apple actually knows your heart rate. They, they have, they're the one with the devices, right? And, and no offense to the Amazon Echo ecosystem, like that's cool to have a smart speaker, but it's not going to do much for your health. Um, and I think that's going to be really interesting to see where they play. I mean, Apple better than anyone, you know, owns user experience. And I think talk about what sucks the most right now in the medical industry is the experience. I mean, ultimately the doctors are actually guessing. I'm sure you know the stats on this, like less than, was it uh, 25 to 30% of medical or medicines that are given out are effective. That means 65 to 70% are not. Cancer drugs are even less, like 20%. So no matter who you are as a doctor, no matter how many PhDs you've had, no matter how many years you've had in the game, you are guessing. There are so many different diseases and aspects of our lives that are not being researched that we could solve if we paid attention. And to have big tech companies lead, I think is really positive. It's actually one of my... um. Uh, I do a, uh, a keynote talk that says why the future of health, uh, is not your doctor's responsibility. It's yours. All of us hate our healthcare companies, but we trust and give all of our data to these other companies every day for free, but we pay thousand dollars a year for companies. We literally can't stand having to work with or file claims with or try to figure out. So it's not about who has better underwriters, who has better, you know, insurers. It's who has a relationship with the customer, who do they trust, who do they want to give their data to? Cause that's the new future of healthcare. May it be Google, Amazon, Apple, or other company, the success of new solutions will derive from making use of large volumes of data. The next expert you will hear from is Miranda Gottlieb, a master's student from Beijing, pursuing a career in global health policy and health security in Asia-Pacific region. According to her knowledge, data gathering rules in China are at the moment very favorable for companies. Patient privacy legislation is much less rigorous than in the West, as long as companies are okay with the Chinese government having access to their servers. Miranda talks about the formal structure of Chinese healthcare, followed by thoughts on clinical trials, use of technology and very stigmatizing attitude of the Chinese government towards mental health issues. Miranda, hi. Uh, you're currently in China researching technology and electronic medical records. Uh, have you had a personal experience with a doctor's visit so far? I have, yes. Um, I am here in Beijing, China. I primarily use the private healthcare system because of the way my insurance works, but also because of the uh, English language capacity here in, uh, in Beijing. And, and what was the experience like if you compare it to California, where you come from? The healthcare I've received so far in China has been the best quality of my life. Um, the, the private healthcare system in China and particularly the, 
the hospital system known as United Family Healthcare is known to be really the highest quality um, private healthcare system in Asia. And, uh, and the experience was, was really, um, comprehensive. It was almost no wait time. Everything was, uh, electronic and, um, all of the staff was bilingual. Um, and really there was just a, a great integration of technology into the workflow of the, of the nurses, admin and, and doctors, um, that made the, the process so much faster than, than that of what I usually have experienced in the U.S. You mentioned that the staff is bilingual. Did you talk to the doctors and nurses in Chinese or in English? Uh, I have some Chinese, so I, I like to practice with them, but there's a lot of technical terms that, uh, that I don't know. So I primarily use English. Y you know, with, with all of the staff, th there's really great integration of, uh, health records between the, uh, call support staff and the, the hospital clinics themselves. And so they're able to really easily um, you know, look up uh, a patient, uh, and, and, and have all of the records really quite, uh, with, with great integration. Um, so, but you as a patient, uh, how is your, uh, electronic health record stored? Do you have it somewhere accessible? I don't know, in an online safe portal or in a mobile uh, app? I don't, I, I don't have any of those things stored. The best, the best thing I have, I guess, uh, is, is through the insurance company that's able to track various claims, um, you know, through, uh, through an online system, but, but carrying my own, uh, medical records is on a thumb drive, um, just of, of things basically that I scanned from the U.S. Much like in the U.S. when you enter other health systems, you know, other doctors, you know, you fill out a medical history form and you basically verbally alert the physician or, or medical professional of, of your past ailments or current conditions. You're basically a blank page to the new provider. Exactly. Healthcare in China consists of both public and private medical institutions and insurance programs and about 95% of the population has at least a basic health insurance coverage. So it's a very uh, centralized system. And uh, I know you're on, on a private plan, but can you compare what this public system means in terms of regular uh, access to healthcare since uh, most of the Chinese are in the public healthcare system. So so it's true that 95 and probably more percent of the population is under a universal healthcare system, but that doesn't mean that they don't have supplementary insurance. You know, if if we remember there uh is about 115 million one percenters in, in, in China. There's a lot of people who want really high quality, comprehensive and immediate care that the private healthcare system is able to provide. In terms of the public system, I mean, you have the, the kind of, um, uh, replicable systems of, uh, city or, or county level uh, tertiary care centers that are very comprehensive in, in the breadth of their, um, coverage. Uh, what about the influence on the technological side? For example, uh, in Europe, uh, where the public systems are prevalent, a lot of companies face the problem that consumers expect the health insurance to cover everything concerning their health, which also means that they're less uh, prepared to pay for digital solutions. My experience with the 
public system is is mostly through the tours uh, that I've I've been able to go on of, of various facilities. There are a couple of important things to note about who's getting care in the public system. Um, one, there's a, a structure of, of care that is similar to um, the United States and probably other places of tiered healthcare systems. So you have the most complex um, you know, surgeries and the largest breadth of specialties happening at tertiary care uh, clinics that have emergency departments and advanced surgery. Um, you have the uh, secondary uh, hospital centers that may have maternity clinics and wards, but maybe not, um, you know, a specialist of, of all kinds. Um, and then you have clinics um, rural and rural village clinics that do primary health care delivery. In the public sector, it's also important to note that um, 95% or more, potentially, the, the goal is by 2020 to have every Chinese citizen under a universal healthcare plan, um, is that there is an incentive now through the, uh, universal healthcare, UHS, uh, I'm sorry, UHC system to push people into a primary care system similar to that of the U.S. So first going to a primary care center in the local village and then being referred through the system. However, that is not what has been in place for most of Chinese healthcare. It has been to go directly to a specialist. Um, and so there's a real shift in the way that healthcare is being consumed of trying to educate patients about the need to go through a primary healthcare uh, center, but there is a stigma that still exists that you know specialist care or these these tertiary care uh, um, hospitals are just delivering better quality care. How is digitization of healthcare visible on an everyday uh, level? There has been a shift since about the mid two thousands, around two thousand five, when the government began to have health as more of a priority and more of as more as a component of their strategic plans. Pr previous to that, the marketization and liberalization of of China in the period of opening up uh, demanded that hospitals figure out ways to to cover their costs. Um, really millions, I think up to 90 million people lost health insurance. And so hospitals were were faced with having to to basically balance their budgets. And the way that they did that was through really an arms race of technology. Medical devices and equipment in in many Chinese hospitals are quite advanced. And that that can be seen really all across the country, save in in maybe just some of the poorest parts of of the country but really in all of the tertiary clinics there there's a lot of advanced technology um and 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 a real focus on making those those hospitals competitive because of the market principles that were behind the healthcare reform during the 80s and 90s now i would say there's a new structure and there are new conversations about how to keep hospitals afloat that um do not make out-of-pocket costs so high for, for Chinese patients. And there's now a, a, a goal on the um, Healthy China 2030 plan, is, which is to lower out-of-pocket costs to less than 30% per patient or, or for patients, I guess, as a, as a whole. So there's a real a, a drive to, to really reduce costs. I would say that, that there is redundancy in some areas of Chinese healthcare that require a lot of paperwork or bureaucracy 
Um, and, and there are other areas that digitization is, is quite important. And so I would say, and I would say that the, that the processes in terms of, you know, me- medical records keeping, check-in, um, or any kind of administrative function is secondary to that of delivery of care, which is seen as higher quality, the more digital function that there is. And um, that's my kind of general perception. Um, one thing that's um, been attracting a lot of attention around China is this uh, system of uh social scores which incorporate basically everything a person does um, social media presence um, all the data that the government can have so where is healthcare in this equation a lot of the the s- social credit scoring system has yet to be unveiled i would say that a lot of the health connecting technologies results from the social media functions and and applications that Chinese are using. Of course, because of my limited Chinese language ability, I'm I'm not on all of those those applications, but um things similar to what uh you know the iPhone has in terms of the the pedometer, the health app, um various functions like that exist to track your steps, to track blood pressure, to track um now how that's being applied to f- physicians care and oversight is is really I, I don't think that's been fully fleshed out yet. I think that the opportunity for that exists more quickly really within the private healthcare system because um, they're able to to experiment and pilot projects in different ways that sometimes the the public system isn't able to. On the other hand, you know the the kind of um, monitoring that the Chinese government is able to do on both foreigners and and citizens is quite comprehensive. For example, now at the at the airport, there are new biometric scanners that are used to put facial recognition and fingerprints and track these kinds of identifiers to individuals entering the country. And so, other biometrics I think are being incorporated. Sometimes not necessarily in health uh, delivery, but in other parts of surveillance and um and and that will be part of maybe like what could be become the the future of a a solidarity you know moment or or function in China that healthcare providers are able to see all of the data not just health but you know other kinds of um social behavior uh, but I think that's a long way off. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's there's definitely a big um, expectation on what large amounts of data from different sources and from different aspects of our lives are going to consolidate in. Yeah, well, because I'm uh, talking to a European, I will uh, share this very candidly. I I came in as a um, person who was very interested in illicit drugs. Actually, that was my my background was working in addiction and and public health in the United States, and so I came uh, wanting to explore the, those topics in China. I I pivoted away from that because I recognized the constraints that were the, the constraints that that are in China for for foreigners wanting to do research in this, not only linguistically but also in terms of the sensitive sensitivity in in those areas, particularly mental health and addiction treatment. Um, but I explored them to the the best of my ability, and and there were two things that really surprised me. Um, one was the lack of capacity in mental health care. 
in every area in, in terms of like the public health care system and the private health care system, the education about mental health uh, care, um, the uh, the availability of medicines, you know, pharmaceutical medicines available to treat uh, things like depression or anxiety. Uh, and then the the area of addiction, which um, in the Chinese system is is dealt with very differently than many Western countries, which primarily involves forced detox centers. Um, if and the people who are primarily responsible for delivery of this I- intervention is the police, are the police. And so, um, what I found really interesting was that different than this kind of idea of probation, if someone has committed a crime or or and had been in violation of of a, of a drug law, was the follow up and monitoring conducted by the police uh, that involved quite. Uh, serious oversight, and and that that was really the first my first window into how healthcare is delivered in in China, which is is really not always um, in line with international standards. And I know drugs are illicit drugs are a particularly sensitive topic for many uh, governments, but this was quite surprising to me uh, was to see the the delivery of care, if you if you could even call it that, to be done by by the police. Um, so that was really my first. My first window, and then juxtaposed with that was my own care, which I think the first thing that I did, my first interaction here in China was to get a couple of vaccines. And in the private healthcare system, it, it just superseded that of anything I had ever received in the U.S. Um, in terms of quality of care. Uh, and uh, it, although understanding that if there was some other kind of medicine or or ailment that I had, it's p- possible that the medications that I would want um, could be quite limited. You know, birth control, um, uh, pills, uh, different kinds of hormonal therapies remain quite limited. Uh, in vitro fertilization um, therapies remain incredibly limited in China for any number of mental health conditions remain limited. So there there are a number of limitations and I'm lucky to, to not have had to encounter those problems, but was made pretty aware of them in just terms of the, the limitation of drugs, medications that are available here in in China. So mental health issues are very stigmatized. Yes. <laughs> and they, they tend to be in, in many countries, but, but in China, it, it seems to be a, a really, a, a very t- touchy subject for, for a number of not only care providers, but also for, for people that I've talked to about it. When it comes to technologies, is it possible, uh, like from your perspective and experience of doing the research on the ground in China, to compare um, how fast uh, is the progress being made in terms of big data, CRISPR, blockchain, artificial intelligence, or other technologies? Um, did you dive into that? What's your observation? So there are new, in, in terms of big data, I mean, there's so many companies uh, that are emerging here that are trying to use big data for um, all kinds of artificial intelligence applications, um, health definitely being part of that. However, the application, the privacy concerns are really very different here in China than they are maybe in the West. The the kinds of privacy of personal data, the, the kinds of restrictions or uh, desires of the public to have restrictions on those are are not necessarily in in the same field of vision, and so the government maintains quite expansive control or access to uh, broad swaths of data, not only from social media but also that of private data from health records and and other kinds of more private sensitive topics. In terms of blockchain, I mean there is a fervor here in China for 
utilization of, of blockchain technology. The application for it, however, though, in, in the public healthcare system remains to really be implemented in a way in which uh, I, I see as sustainable at the moment. Um, and the reason is because it that permits a, a type of transparency that I'm not sure that the Chinese government is ready for. In the West, in a democratic system, you know, transparency is really important for election and accountability of government officials. And the, the way in which accountability and transparency is used here is, is is different. And accountability of government officials may may take a different form sometimes. And and it's not necessarily monitored in terms of, of having um uh, you know, a, a transparent, uh, verifiable blockchain uh, blocks that can indicate those those kinds of uh, achievements. But there are so many companies that are that are working on it. For example, um, I know that there's uh, a number a number of companies that are looking to. Um, you know, work on artificial intelligence and robotic technologies to help people, you know, who have dementia and Alzheimer's. And there's a number of health interventions that are using new technologies and, and science to, to improve the, the status of health. And in terms of CRISPR, I mean, I know there's a, a number of policy debates happening right now in terms of, of privacy for biogenetic information and uh, g- genomics. And I don't believe my understanding is that it hasn't been resolved yet. Um, that's the difference, I think, sometimes in, in China than in, in some other countries is that the regulations can change quite rapidly or windows of opportunity can be born um, for these technologies to be implemented and adapted or piloted and also just as quickly permissions and approvals rescinded. That's exactly the big question. So if the privacy laws are less restrictive in China, um, does that mean that the Chinese uh, tech companies are going to leave the market very quickly because uh, in in the West, the privacy laws are getting uh, harsher, which can also slow down certain development. There's opportunity for companies to come in to use data in ways that maybe would be restricted in the West. And that may be confrontational to a Western consumer because they v- value privacy perhaps differently than some Chinese consumers. But I think it's because the expectation has been set that data isn't private in China. Um, you know, that the cens- their censorship on, on, uh, social media platforms like WeChat and Weibo, um, and moving forward, there could be some change or national mood swing, but I believe that would be contrary to the interest of the Chinese Communist Party. In clinical trial research, there's, there's a new guideline. Um, it hasn't, it hasn't been adopted formally, which permits pharmaceutical companies to have privacy protections and basically by the government for their submission of clinical trial data. Um, and this mimics that of, of the Europe and the United States. And this is a huge step actually for clinical trial researchers and for, for companies investing in new pharmaceuticals or biosimilars or even medical devices, honestly. Uh, this is a big win for companies because they will be more interested in investing if they're able to keep uh, restrictions on that data and not allow it to go to the competitors. Now, on the other hand, in terms of of patient data, patient pieces within these these clinical trials, and I guess you could extrapolate that out to to other kinds of of data collection, that is that is where um, I don't believe that China will place larger restrictions on 
because they too want access to that to that data. What would you say um, the the West could learn from from China as a last question in terms of the technological healthcare development? I think the piloting is something that is really uh, an interesting way to work with healthcare in um, you know piloting projects for. Um, elderly care to be able to pilot projects in um, in the ways in which applications are reviewed um, for government benefits um, for for healthcare coverage. I think that there those are some lessons that we can um, we can take from China because they're taking the lessons that we have in terms of developing strong regulatory framework um, and cutting out a number of the bureaucratic steps and um, you know uh, inefficiencies here. Um, but you know the the risk in that is always different in the US than it is in China. And, and a lot of it has to do with political risk or the kind of uh, bureaucratic red tape that it takes to create pilot projects, you know, that are uh, re require funding from multiple agencies and things. And, and here in this, this system, it is, it's much more, or at least from the outside appears to be much more um, uh, accessible and implementable at a, at a faster pace. There you go. This was the 12th episode of Faces of Digital Health. Quite a lot of country profiles have piled up so far. I covered Israel, India, US, Kenya, Africa, Germany, Sweden, UK, Dubai, USA and more. Look for Faces of Digital Health on Medium or browse through episodes in your podcast player to find out more. And subscribe to the podcast so every time a new episode is published, you will automatically be notified in your podcast player. You can also find me on Twitter under at Z. Stay tuned.